All right, if you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 7, we're continuing this series called Ghostwriting and Pen Names in the book of Mark. Uh, those of you watching online, thanks for tuning in. Those of you here, you might notice the lights dim periodically. That's just Jesus making the darkness tremble. Okay, so don't worry about that. I have no idea what that actually is in real life, but uh, somehow we prophetically spoke that into happening. And... Uh, We're going to make the most of it. So there you go. But I want to read for you out of Mark chapter 7, the infamous hand-washing fiasco of 1 AD. And you thought we were the only ones being maligned based on our hands' cleanliness. Au contraire, mon frere. Here we go. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. Mark parenthetically lets us know, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands, duly noted, as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they do not eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles, end parentheses. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus making the darkness tremble. You see that? Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep, underline, highlight, whatever you do. You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own Tradition. God, help us understand this word that you have spoken. Uh, be with me as I try to do uh, my best to exegete the text as you have given it to me, but do what only you can do and speak to our hearts, change our lives, make us new. Let us leave this place being drawn one step closer to your son, Jesus. We ask all this in his powerful name. Amen. In 1930, 16-year-old George Nissen attended a circus in his hometown of Cedar Rapids, Iowa. While watching the aerialists flip to a safety net below, he began to wonder, I wonder if there's a contraption, some sort of apparatus that would allow the artists to keep bouncing. Like, what if the acrobats could do their initial trick, but then they would bounce and follow that trick into multiple more tricks without stopping and climbing back onto the perch that they opened their little tricks with? Now, it would take more than a decade and many failed prototypes, but on March 6, 1945, Nissen finally found success. His tumbling device, later known as the trampoline, was patented. Aside from being used in homes all over the world today, the United States Navy and Air Force both began using the trampoline as a way to train pilots. NASA would put the trampoline into service so that their astronauts could exercise in preparation for space travel. 
If you're a child of the 60s or 70s, you likely endured some sort of trampoline unit in physical education class. Matter of fact, gas stations all over this great country used to install trampolines on their grounds so that kids could jump while their parents fueled up, which is just a fantastic thing, if you ask me, right? Because the kids are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? And you're like, just just go jump on the trampoline and leave me alone. Uh, in one of my favorite marketing campaigns, George trained a kangaroo to bounce on a trampoline with him because nothing says good morning like waking up to a cup of coffee and seeing a kangaroo jumping on your trampoline in the backyard, which you'd be like, what the freak is going on? But uh, as you can imagine, after this 1945 marketing campaign, sales took off, jump centers began sprouting up all across these United States. However, poorly regulated facilities and no training for the workers led to a number of accidents and ultimately because a piling of lawsuits, a growing stack of lawsuits, Nissan had a sales company and the rights to the patent of the trampoline. So here's my question. Who's to blame for the injuries? Nissan for inventing the trampoline or for uh, the people for using it without fully understanding it. I ask you that because I feel like the trampoline is a metaphor for our lives. A lot of people like to blame God for how things turn out when they didn't use his manual prior to jumping. I have here a little trampoline. And for the sake of illustration, let's pretend like we've never seen a trampoline before. We grew up a sheltered life. We were part of that movie, The Village. And it was just as horrible for us as it was watching it. So don't even worry about that. But we somehow escaped over the walls. We came across the trampoline, a device that we've never seen before. And somebody within our group said, I, I feel like I've read about these. We're like, what is it? They say, I believe it is called a trampoline. And it is notoriously fun when used appropriately. And we were like, well, how do you use it? I would like to have fun with the trampoline. And they were like, well, I believe uh, you spin it like this. It's some sort of spinning apparatus where you turn it. And if you can make it spin the longest, you win. That sounds horrible. That's not fun at all. It's like fun for 30 seconds. If you're super competitive, yeah, that's maybe that's fun. Fortunately for us, there happens to be someone in the group that speaks Spanish. And she says, in my native tongue, the trampoline means diving board. So I believe what you're actually supposed to do is jump on it. And so we flip it over and we commence to jumping. Which this sounds, you know, this looks like an awesome piece of thing. And for like five, so you're like, well, that could be fun, but it seems like these daggers and the end of it could get problematic if you somehow stumbled and you fell and impaled yourself in an unnatural position on the thing. But uh, in a, you know, divine intervention, providentially. There's a nerd in our group because there's always that nerd. You know what I'm saying? And the nerd says, well, guys, listen, I came across this handbook and it, you know, according to my calculations, the trampoline is upside down. If you would flip it over, it would become way more fun. 
And so we flip, that could have been a bad deal for all involved. But we flip it over and we start jumping and we're like, this is the funnest thing I've ever experienced outside of the village. This can't get any better. And so we jump for a while and we all take turns and, uh, we, we love the trampoline. And the nerd says, we're like, thanks nerd for that. But the nerd says, well, according to this handbook, not only is there this trampoline, but they make trampolines that are huge and you can jump all over them and bounce and you can flip and you can do tricks and you can put a sprinkler under the trampoline and you can put a basketball goal next to it and you can slam dunk off the trampoline and you can take watermelons to the top of a building and drop them off onto the trampoline and they'll bounce into people's cars and it's amazing and we're like calm down Karen we can only bounce for so long just let us handle the trampoline for how it was intended to be used one step at a time what does it say about me that I am out of breath, jumping 30 seconds on a trampoline. But for years and years, people used the trampoline as it was intended to be used. But then some bad actors came along and they discovered the trampoline as well. And they said, I heard that if we could jump on the trampoline together, it's even more fun because I could bounce you higher than you could bounce yourself. And if we timed this just right, I could springboard you. And you're like, well, that's not in the handbook. There's nothing in uh, the, in fact, I think there's a warning about that. And they're like, oh, it'll be fine, which is what people tell you uh, right before you're about to die. Oh, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And so... Uh, uh, you do it, and then all of a sudden femurs start getting broke, and people start flying off the trampoline, and everybody's injured. It's catastrophic. Springs start pinching people, and now the uh, people know you longer how you know how to use the trampoline the way it was intended, and so uh, they think they're using it right, but they're just getting a small glimpse of what it could be, and they're being bounced all over the place, and reactively. Some well-meaning people come along and say, well, we just got to get rid of the trampoline altogether. And the people can't bounce anymore. People are like, well, no, we don't need to get rid of it. We just need to put a net around it. Let's make the trampoline safer and we can cover up the springs and we can ratchet strap down the legs. And instead of being able to use the trampoline for fun and for freedom and for joy, as Nissan intended, we use the trampoline. Now people are just getting a small glimpse of what could actually be life on the trampoline. Here's my point. You might want to jot this down. Sometimes the place you go for freedom is the same place you become enslaved. Sometimes the place you go to for freedom is the very same place that you can become enslaved. Isn't that what's going on in our text in Mark chapter 7? God's laws, which are meant for your freedom, get hijacked. And some folks put a cage around the trampoline of life. And to that point, when it comes to life, didn't we learn last week that Jesus came to set the captives free? And he didn't come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill it. And so the law is what we're actually supposed to go to for freedom. If if Jesus came to set the captives free and to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that means the fulfillment of Jesus leads to your freedom. But here we have some laws that led Pharisees into slavery because they didn't use the laws God intended. They started adding to it, and it became bondage. And let's do this. Let's take God and the Bible completely out of it. Haven't you learned this in your life, that the same place you go to for freedom 
is the same place you can end up becoming a slave. Because we say, I need more money. Money will give me freedom. I'll be free to buy all the things that I want and enjoy life. If I just had more money, I would be free. And what happens? We become slaves to our job. We become slaves to finding money. Or we say, uh, if I could just be free to eat whatever I want, food tastes good, I like how it makes me feel, I'm free to eat whatever, and I become 400 pounds. And now I'm a slave to my diet. Or I want love. I'll find love with whoever will give it to me, and now I'm a captive to my desires because I thought I would find freedom in love. See, what you should have learned by now is that discipline equals freedom. Discipline equals freedom because I'm disciplined with my money. Now I'm free to use it however I want. Because I'm disciplined in my diet and in my exercise, I'm free to enjoy some of the foods that I want. Because I'm disciplined in my marriage and in my parenting and in my workplace, right? In my schoolwork. Now I'm free. And we just read the Pharisees come to confront Jesus with a man-made ritual. And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? Y'all are concerned with a law that you made up. He's like, this isn't even in the handbook. And a lot of people like to blame God for oppressive oppressive rules that he didn't even make up. He didn't institute. And it's like, God, why do I do? And God's like, I never said that. What's verse 2 say? The Pharisees noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. It's not God's law. To be clear, it's the same thing that we like to do in our lives as well. We like to read into God's law our own traditions and our own culture, and we project them onto everybody else. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, like, hey, your, your boys didn't wash their hands, which in fairness, that is kind of gross. Okay, if uh, somebody came over for supper and they just scooped their hand in the mashed potatoes and flopped it down on the plate, you'd be aghast. You're not eating after that guy, right? You'd be like, what are you doing? Why did you wash your hands? Just for the record, seven out of ten people don't wash their hands with soap after leaving the bathroom. Let that sink in, okay? Next time some, Selah on that next time you have somebody over for supper and you're like, I wonder where their hands have been. If they're in the 30%, probably not, statistically speaking. But the Pharisees were not actually concerned about hygiene. In fact, the water that they would use to wash their hands, you know, it said they had to be cupped hands. They'd take a pitcher and they'd scoop it out of a bowl and they'd pour it over the hands. And then the next guy would come and they'd take the bowl, the same bowl, and they'd pour it over their hands. Or when they went to the marketplace, they'd have these big uh, jars, the same jars that Jesus used to turn water into wine. They would stick uh, their hands in the jars. And then the next guy would come, you know, they'd get scrubbed in and then they'd go and sit to eat. And then the next guy would come along and they'd stick their hands in and... uh like the fifth guy in, you're like, well, this isn't even doing anything anymore, right? You're not circulating the water. Somebody's got to change out the water. But you can tell that this is not about sanitation. This is about putting on a show. Look at me. Look at how clean I am. Look at what I do before I eat, you scrubs. You non-scrubbers are scrubs. And that's not what the law is for. So one of the things you should be concerned about, whether you're a Christian or not, is what is the Bible for? Like, what is it that those of us who follow the Bible, what are we trying to accomplish when we obey what it says? 
To answer that, we need to pay attention to what Jesus says when he quotes Isaiah 29. And he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Ultimately, what I think Jesus is saying is the point of the Bible and the purpose of the Bible is not formal compliance. It's not you becoming a slave to what it says. If it was, if the point of the Bible was your formal compliance, then the location of your heart wouldn't matter. All that would matter is that you kept the list. You did the law. Good job. Congratulations. So Jesus is saying, God is after your heart. It's far from me. I want you to be close to me. And if you look at obeying the Bible as uh, rules and regulations, that shows that you think the purpose of the Bible is you and your righteousness and your being an obedient person. As such... You can say to God, God, look at all the good I have done. You should bless me now because I kept all of your rules. I did everything that is on your list. And to think that is to completely miss the purpose of the book. God's goal in writing these commands is not so you can get him in a corner. It's not so that you can manipulate and control him. The purpose of obeying God's words according to Jesus, is so that your heart can be close to God. And so that there can be an intimacy between you and God. Again, the point of the Bible is to set you free. It's to bring you peace. God, the author of life, wants you to enjoy it, not misuse it. And he's given you a handbook as a resource for you to enjoy your life. I think the greatest place in the Bible, the illustration and demonstration where this plays itself out, this principle for understanding the purpose of the Bible is found in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. You can read them sometime on your own. But in Exodus 20, uh, we get the Ten Commandments. They're spelled out for us, the way that God's people should live, the ultimate revelation of God saying, here's what I want you to do as my people, which earlier in the series we already established Jesus confirms nine of the Ten Commandments, right? The exception being the Sabbath and uh, Exodus chapter. So that's Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 19 is when God is about to give Moses on Mount Sinai the Ten Commandments. And before he does, God says this. Check this out. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now... If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. So listen, this is one of the most important aspects of the Bible. God did not come to the children of Israel in Egypt and say, if you obey my law, then I'll rescue you. He did not say, if you keep my commandments, then I will bring you out of slavery on eagle's wings. He didn't say, if you obey me, I'll save you. What's he say? I saved you. I brought you out of slavery. I released you out of the bondage of the most powerful nation on the planet. And you did nothing. You didn't lift a finger. You didn't have to carry a weapon. I did everything. I saved you. You didn't do it. 
And I, God, did not save you because you were obedient, because you were not obedient. And I did not save you because you obeyed the law. You didn't even have the law. I saved you out of sheer, unmerited grace. Favor. Okay. I see where you're going, Pastor. If we roll this out into our lives, I'm saved by sheer, unmerited grace of God out of the slavery of sin, the bondage of sin, and I see that God has already set His love on me, why in the world do I obey? And God says, because this is how you can become my treasure. This is how you treasure me, and this is how I treasure you. This is how we have an intimate relationship with one another. This is how you get set free. This is how you maximize your life, by doing what I say. See, it's not about washed hands. It's about washed hearts. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. It's not about washing your hands. It's about washing your heart. Sin does the same thing to the soul that dirt, disease, and decay do to your body. It kills it. Which takes me back to the title of my message. The trampoline of life. That is to say, God is the one who created life. He is the one who gets to define how it works. And some people will know exactly what the purpose of life is for, which is to glorify God by being in a joyful relationship with Him, but it is too terrifying for them to do anything. The cost is too high. The options are too overwhelming. And so they'll do nothing. And for others, they'll get to enjoy life on their own terms but they'll only enjoy it for a little while because it can't last. It won't last because it's not how God designed life to work. And still for others, they'll do what the Pharisees did and they'll define the boundaries of life and they'll put nets around the trampoline and they'll put fences around the nets and more fences around the fences that they initially, and they'll become skillfully sidestepped They'll become uh, able to skillfully sidestep God's laws. And they'll work around the fences and they'll do this little dance, which is where many people find themselves and they'll miss the point. But for a few, a very select few, they'll use their life as God intended and they'll have a blast. They'll find freedom. They'll find joy. And I feel like part of my job is to help you discover how to have freedom and joy and a blast in life. Amen, somebody. And it's not because I'm an expert on having a blast and having joy. It's because I'm the nerd that God said to study the handbook on the whole trampoline of life. And the handbook tells me that you've been created with a purpose. And I want to help you Connect to God's purpose for your life so that you can find freedom and fulfillment and use your trampoline the way God intended you to. And if there's any one thing I need you to understand about the Bible, apart from the sheer unmerited grace that Jesus wants to use to save your life, one of the things that I need you to understand about the Bible is the Bible has both tools and rules. It has both descriptions and 
prescriptions. Sometimes it describes how some people did some things. And sometimes it prescribes how they did some things so you can do the same things and get the same results. But there are both tools and rules. There's concepts. And the trouble that we can get ourselves into is if we, like the Pharisees, take a tool, a concept, and we turn it into a rule. For example, here in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees took a rule that was meant for priests who were about to go into the Holy of Holies, and they were supposed to cleanse themselves because they're about to meet with a righteous and holy God, and they can have nothing defiling them when they get into the presence of God. And the Pharisees said, well, if it's good for them to do before they meet God, how much better would it be for everybody to do right before they talk to God? And they took a rule, a tool, and they turned it into a rule. And God's like, nope, that's not the rule. The rule's for the priests. And uh, if you want to do that, then fine. That can be a good thing in your life. But there's nothing that says you have to do that. You've taken something and turned it into nothing. And ultimately, the whole hand-washing thing is just a precursor for what Jesus came to do. See, Jesus is the ultimate high priest who cleanses us from sin so we can go into the presence of God. And again, it has nothing to do with sanitation. It has everything to do with salvation. But I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time outlining the rules for you because you know how to read. And God pretty well spells out exactly what he's concerned with right here in his handbook. And so if you're new to the whole Bible thing, might I suggest you start out with the great commandment and the golden rule, which you learned in kindergarten that you need to, you know, love each other as you you love yourself and do unto others as they would do unto you. And uh, the Ten Commandments, like those are things that God's really concerned with. So maybe you should start with some of those things. But I think we'd best be served in trying to figure out what are tools and what are rules and how can we discern for ourselves what and when we read something in Scripture, how do we know? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is this a tool or a rule? And how many of you all know having the right tool for the job is a big deal? And uh, if you're going to go fix your car, you probably don't need the table saw. Okay, but if you're going to build some kind of table or something, you might want the table saw. You can put away the ratchet for a little while. And so having the tool is a big deal. And this is the beauty of God's word, because God knew it would last for thousands of years and it would span hundreds of civilizations and be translated into dozens and dozens of languages. And he knew the best thing he could do is give us just a couple clear, distinct commands that would last forever. And then because we'd be using this and people would be so different throughout the centuries, he said, here's going to be some overarching principles that would allow all of the people to find freedom and operate within these boundaries that I've created that are rather broad when you consider it. Uh, So check this out. Let's combine what we just learned in Mark chapter 7 and where the Pharisees are at and trying to institute these man-made traditions with some other people that are doing the same thing in Romans chapter 14. And Paul writes to these Romans uh, because they're acting like Pharisees all hung up on uh, man-made traditions. And he's like, you're missing the point. Jesus said, you're missing the point. Paul says, you're missing the point. Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. Some people believe you can eat anything with unwashed hands. 
but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables because vegans have sensitive consciences. Okay, that's what I just said. That's not what that said. That's a poor example. Don't tell anybody I said that. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. And those who wear a mask must not look down on those who don't wear a mask. That's what's being said there. This is not going good so far. Verse 4. Who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another day, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord, since they give thanks to God before they eat. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. Yes, each, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God based on how we use the tools he gave us. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Tools. Here's the thing that you need to discover about tools. First of all, you should try them all. Try them all. Because there's like a ton of tools out there. Y'all been to Lowe's recently? There's tools everywhere and for every job and the same thing is true in your spiritual life there's a different tool for hundreds of millions of different people and you should try and figure out what works for you there's podcasts and bible apps and conferences and speakers and books to read and have you ever noticed that everybody has a different thing that you're supposed to be doing and if you just did what they did then you'd have the same results and you're like well i don't understand why this isn't working for me it's because there's a lot of different tools out there and do i believe that you should get up early and read your bible and journal about it and pray and yeah and fast yeah i think you should do all those things but again those are tools there's nothing commanding me in scripture that i'll have to do those in a certain way at a certain time and all of these different things god's given us some overarching principles that's why the jesus uh, disciples come in they're like teach us to pray and he's like all right here's the way you can pray and there's a way that works and then they do it a different way and then it all works itself out because there's a lot of different tools and uh, maybe you should set your alarm for a little while and get up early and try and read the Bible early and pray for an extended period of time and fast and figure out what works for you because what should actually make you nervous is as Paul pointed out you're going to have to give an account for how you did those things you don't have to give an account for your past sin Jesus paid for that he said, you've got to give an account for the things that uh, I'm asking you to do now. Secondly, when it comes to tools, you should keep what works. You try a whole bunch of tools, and then you've got a toolbox that you need to start putting tools into so you can keep what works. And depending what season of life you are in, it will determine which type of tool you should be using. If you're retired, your toolbox is going to look a lot different than a single mom working two jobs with a kid that you're just trying to homeschool them while the coronavirus is running rampant in the neighborhood. You see what I'm saying? And But if you're a grandparent and all of a sudden the kids come over, 
you might have to get some of the old tools, dust those suckers off, and try and entertain the grandkids for a little while. Uh, you got to get some use out of your tools. Keep in mind, if they were just rules, it wouldn't matter if they worked. It would matter if you did them or not. But because it's a tool, God wants it to work. And so if you're not getting any sort of benefit out of the tool, it's time to move on to another tool. Keep what works. Don't just put them in a stack, you know, to figure out uh, how pretty my tools look. Okay? Which leads me to point three. Loan your tools out. Sometimes you need to loan some tools out. If people come to you for advice, you say, oh, here's a tool that I used when I was in a similar season of life, and uh, you should try using it too. Now, I have a rule for me personally for when I loan out my tools, and that is uh, I'll loan it to you twice, but not a third time. Because if you come to me for advice and I say, hey, here's a tool that I use that God's word said you should probably do, uh, you should use it. And then you come back and you're like, it didn't work. And I'm like, well, did you use the tool? And they're like, no. And then I was like, okay, well, here's the tool again. Try using it this time the way it was intended and tell me how it plays itself out. And they come back a third time. I'm going to say, you know what? Just figure it out because I can't keep loaning you my tools all of the time if you're not going to use them. And I'm enabling you to keep doing things that God said you shouldn't probably doing in the first place. Okay. So, uh, finally, number four, know yourself, be honest with yourself. I'm not pretending we can do that, but it's something that we need to do because many people who stand out as the best example of a particular spiritual discipline trait or quality do so precisely because it's a significant part of how God created them to be and gifted them to be. And he might not be gifting you the same way. And just because they do it doesn't mean you're going to experience the same results because if everybody did what I would do, uh, it'd be a train wreck, trust me. So I heard it said, the grace of a figure skater is useless as a sumo wrestler. Well, that's true in your spiritual life, that we're, God created us differently. And so we got to know what works for us and uh, what's different. You know, what works for me is going to be different than what works for you. And so you got to just keep trying things for a season, let it play itself out and figure out what works, keep what works, loan it out. And be honest. Now, I didn't put these in your notes, but I thought it would be helpful for us to establish and point out what New Anthem's toolbox is. So I, as your pastor, have my own personal toolbox. I'd love to talk to you about that if you've got questions. But we as a church also have a toolbox. And uh, this is easy to remember because they all start with the letter S. Uh, because one of the unwritten rules is that there's bonus points in heaven for pastors who alliterate things. And so I'm just trying to stick with that. But the first thing is salvation. That's the primary tool that we use at New Anthem. We are an evangelistic church. We are concerned about people's future. So we want to bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus and point them into the, the path that he has for their life. So it's all about salvation for us. Secondly, small groups, small groups. We want to build people up in this newly found faith that they have discovered. And we think the best way to do that is in a Christ-centered, significant friendship. So that's what we try and create with our small groups. We try and connect you to people that are in similar seasons of life so you can develop some friendships so that you can, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
And then number three, serving. So we want you to serve your time, your talent, and your treasure because we want to equip you for ministry and we want to send you out to wherever God has placed you in your job, in your family, in your school to be a difference maker wherever that is. So I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. I want you to jump on the trampoline of life and have a blast while doing it. People say, church just wants something from me. Yeah, I want you to have an awesome life. That's what I want. Nobody's like excited about that? (laughs) All right. People online are in the chat. They're excited. But here's uh, what I'm really trying to point out. Isn't it relieving to know that God is not after your rule keeping? He's after your heart trajectory? Like he, he's after you figuring out how to do life. That's one of the beauty of the, the things that God has created, that you get to figure this out in these boundaries and they're so broad and you get to do different things. And he's not after, he's after a relationship and he wants to lead you. And uh, he uses his Holy Spirit to guide you. And as Paul pointed out, that as the Lord commands, you need to follow that lead. Do what God is telling you to do in your life as long as it lines up with the boundaries that he's placed in Scripture. He uses generic principles to uh, say, I need you to go down this path. This is the path that leads to life. It's a narrow path, but it's a path that leads to joy and fulfillment. God, thank you for these truths that you have placed in Scripture. We're asking you to do now what only you can do. And through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your Holy Word, speak to our lives. Help us figure out where we are falling short and where we need to change some things in our lives that will lead to our joy. God, if these are commands in Scripture that we're not following, then convict us of those things. And if there's some guiding principles that you would like us to follow, encourage us in those things. And some of you need to start setting an alarm and getting up early and reading Scripture. And some of you, God, might be asking you to fast in this season of life. And some of you, God, might be encouraging you to memorize some Scripture and put His Word in your heart. And some of you are in a relationship that God's not proud of, and He wants you to uh, start putting some boundaries up within that relationship. And there's just a lot of things in this room that God is speaking in this moment. And those of you online, God is speaking into your hearts and he's trying to encourage you or convict you where you need it. And God, I trust that you are doing that because you promised to do it. And help us as we try and navigate this path of life the best we know how. We're thankful for that free gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. And God, where we're falling short, help us run back into your arms. Help us understand that you have in mind for us fullness of life. You're not trying to keep any things from us. God, let us be encouraged because your son, Jesus, forgive us our sin, make us new, change us into his image, and help us live a life to the full. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.